12th of Role Play Grow, the podcast for tabletop entrepreneurs, creators, and fans. I am Courtney Stover of Lighthearted Adventures, and in this podcast, we talk to the creators behind the brands and the tabletop roleplay gaming space about who they are and how they are turning their passion for gaming into a career. Today's guest is JB Little, also known as the best-selling TTRPG author, reviewer, and game designer, Drop the Die. With bestsellers like Taverns, Inns, and Tap Rooms, his compact 4x6 character sheets, and a whole lot more, he has a wealth of knowledge to share about publishing on DMs Guild. We definitely dive into that, but you'll also learn about how he became a professional product reviewer. JB is a delight, and I know that all of you writers out there will be able to learn a lot about finding success on DMs Guild during this conversation. So we will get to the interview in just a bit. But first, I did promise a couple episodes back that I would occasionally drop in some updates on the Lightheart business life. Hey, you know, this is technically a business podcast, so I feel like I should probably mention things that we're trying ourselves from time to time. And hopefully you find it kind of interesting to see what we're up to as well. So I am really excited to say that very soon we should have a new map pack available for purchase on DMs Guild. Britain has been hard at work over the last month developing several maps for Candlekeep Mysteries, and he's getting pretty close to finished. If you want to check out some of his work in progress, I just made us a TikTok account and I'm posting some time-lapse videos of him drawing. I will be honest, I have no idea what I'm doing on TikTok, and I feel entirely too old for this platform, but we're figuring it out, and I'm really enjoying making the time-lapse videos. You can find us on TikTok at Lighthearted Adventures. Eventually, I might start posting things related to the podcast there too, but I don't really know what that'll look like yet. Either way, the map pack should be out pretty soon on DMs Guild, so make sure that you're following us on Instagram or Twitter, and we will get that announcement out there. So lastly, before we dive in, the affiliate that I am featuring today is Dice Envy. David Darris was our very first guest on the show back in episode one, and his company makes some really pretty dice. My current favorite of what they do is the Edge Boss Dice, which are these gorgeous black metal dice with a striped enamel. The original is blue, and it's my favorite, but they also have red now. The blue or red enamel is kind of sparkly too, so it's just, it's really cool how it's interwoven. Uh, They're really pretty, but we really have enjoyed all of the different dice that we have gotten from them. When you are ready to grab yourself some dice, use code LIGHTHEARTADV for 10% off your order, and you'll also help support the show. All right, it is time to go chat with JB. Today, I'm really excited to introduce you all to the ultra-talented and best-selling TTRPG author, JB Little, also known as Drop the Die. How are you today, JB? I'm all right. How are you? I'm pretty good. Recording on a Monday is always fun. It's it's kind of a crap shoot, really. <laughs> <laughs> is it going to be one of those Mondays or a regular Monday? Yeah. So far, it's regular Monday for me. Well, I mean, that's good. That's better than those days. <laughs> so to start things off, can you tell us a bit about who you are and how you got into the gaming space? I am JB, and I've actually only been playing tabletop games since 
oh, 2009, <laughs> 2010. Uh, God, time, time is immaterial. <laughs> but I actually started well into college. I had never even like considered what a role-playing game, a tabletop role-playing game was until then. But when I first went to college, I studied uh, software programming, computer programming, and game design. So when I finally transitioned into playing tabletop games, I, I had a great foundation to start working with. And because I had changed my major from game design to writing, particularly literature and fiction, it, it just fit. It all kind of just slotted in together and, uh, and worked pretty rapidly. And I did it as a hobby for quite a while. And it was only in 2018 that I transitioned. I moved from Mississippi to Las Vegas, Nevada. That's how they say it here, Nevada. <laughs> I moved to Las Vegas, Nevada and started doing full-time for the tabletop stuff while I was hunting for a job. And realized pretty quickly that I was making about as much as I was at my previous job, just making stuff and publishing it on DMs Guild. Since then, it's just been kind of holding on for dear life and letting it letting it play itself out in that regard. Yeah. So at what point was that, did you say, that you started doing it full-time? Uh, 2018. Okay. I, I moved here, uh, I want to say in August. So around October in 2018 is when I started really pushing to find a new job here in Las Vegas. And, you know, when I was realizing that I could still, you know, pay my bills, pay my part, I was living with some friends at the time and I was still saving a little bit of money. And I stopped and looked at the books and I was like, I'm actually not doing terribly if I can keep this up. That's amazing. Especially since it doesn't seem like you planned on that being your full-time thing. Absolutely not. (laughs) (laughs) I figured I would end up working at a factory somewhere or maybe doing like IT for a company. So what were some of the first things that you wrote? Well, something that I suggest all fledgling authors do is use something that you've already made for your own games. So my very first release ever on the DMs Guild which is where I do the vast majority of my work that's not freelance, was a inventory sheet for my characters in my home game to keep track of what was inside their bag of holding. Because they had it on notebook paper and it was sprawled through all these different blank pages. And every time I would ask, they'd have no idea what was inside it. And one day I just made a sheet and I'm like, here, you can type everything. It'll do your weight for you. Here, just use this. And they liked it so much that I was like, I'll put this on the DMs Guild and see if people like it. And it sold like 150 copies or something in the first five days. Freaked me out. (laughs) I'm like, what? People are buying things. I made money from this. (laughs) So what did you do then? Well, after that kind of started selling. I was like, well, what else do I have that people will like? What else have I already made and have in my little back catalog that I can give people? And I had like a sheet of notes for myself of different introductions that I could do for NPCs. 
and keeping them dynamic. You know, you don't want everyone to just say, hello, well met. You want people to be quirky and weird because it grabs your player's attention a little bit more. So I would take those notes and I made 100 plus NPC greetings and put it on the DMs Guild and it sold fairly well. And I made a tiny little character sheet for uh, NPCs because my party loved to adopt people <laughs> and pets. And uh, those four by six NPC sheets sold pretty well as well. I think that's one of my platinum bestsellers at this point. Okay. So it just kind of kept spiraling out from there. I made a character sheet for one player who had trouble like writing all of their information in the official character sheet. I put it on the DMs Guild and sold. I had a warlock who wanted a special spell sheet. I made it and <laughs> sold it on the DMs Guild. So like my first 10 bestsellers were all just stuff that I had already made for my home game and my friends. And, uh, you know, people like that kind of stuff. If one person finds it useful, guaranteed a hundred people will find it useful. Absolutely. And it's interesting because it feels like so many of the items that are on DM Guild are tailored to the dungeon master. And so it sounds like a lot of your first stuff was a lot more versatile. Oh yeah. Yeah. That's something that I've tried to kind of keep as a through line through everything is I do want stuff to make it easier for the dungeon master, but at the same time, players have to do just as much work in their tabletop game. And I don't think that people appreciate that quite as much as I do. I want to give DMs and players springboards for ideas. I want to inspire them to run off and do their own stuff. So every time I do a quest or an NPC or a setting or a magic item, I want people to see it and think, oh, that's cool. That gives me an idea. And whatever that idea is, then I feel like it's a success. That sounds just really awesome. And it's really cool that you just stumbled into it so much. So at what point did you decide to start publishing some adventures? Uh, (laughs) Adventures and I don't get along super well. But I've always had this love of getting just enough information, writing down just enough for myself to be able to keep people entertained and make up the rest, right? I want to have enough already written so that I can run a three-hour game and not, you know, not freak out if I can't think on my feet very quickly. We all have brain fog. Everything's falling apart. (laughs) And I've kind of felt that way uh, since I was like eight. (laughs) It's not new for me. So, When I was making adventures and stuff like that, in my own notes, I would write down a page, a page and a half, just do just enough that I feel like I could flesh it out into something bigger, something grander, something to inspire myself. And when people started asking me to do that sort of thing, when they started saying, you know, hey, what about adventures? I thought, "Uh, sure, I'll give it a shot. And to be honest, a lot of people won't admit this, but there's only like five groups of people on the DMs Guild that publish adventures and have them sell. Adventures are very, very hard to move. It's hard to get people to trust you even for, you know, a $4 or a $3 adventure because there's hundreds and hundreds of thousands released every year on the DMs Guild and elsewhere. 
There's a bunch of free adventures put out online in people's blog posts and stuff like that. So there's a whole lot of competition for adventures. And every single one of them has a specific little divergence, a, a different flavor to them. So you have to get people that really enjoy your particular flavor of adventure, and then they'll buy it again. And word of mouth will help you go along. But if you're publishing adventures yourself on DMs Guild, it is going to be a rocky, rocky road until you get a bestseller. And people learn that they can trust you and learn to keep you in mind whenever they're thinking about a campaign they want to run. So really, all of my adventures, Tales from Under Mountain, The Plagued Apprentice, I have a horror adventure, a pirate adventure, all of those I wrote for me. <laughs> I, I wrote them because I wanted to write them and I was curious if I could do it. And I published them and, you know, eh, they didn't sell great. Like they're, they're probably among my lowest sellers at this point. But what they did do is they inspired me what works best for me. What do I enjoy writing the most about these adventures? And those ideas spun into my absolute best sellers ever. The idea that I liked places and NPCs and things and little fragments of quests, little side quests. And when I started writing those, I really found my niche and people discovered that they really liked my style of giving side quests that feel realistic and rewarding without taking 15 sessions to finish these small little real world things that their players can latch onto. So I think that if you're going to do adventures and publish them for profit, it might be a rockier road than you're prepared for. But if you want to write adventures to discover more what you enjoy about that process and make other things off of it, then it's absolutely worth the effort. What would you say your process has become? Oh, that is a wide question. <laughs> uh, really, let, let me pull it up. We're, we're on my computer. So what I do is I have a folder that's just called D&D Projects. And every time I'm having a conversation with someone, and every time we think of this dream scenario, something that we really want to try, I just write it down and I put it in this folder. A dungeon master in Kyridian that has a bunch of traps and puzzles and stuff like that. So I'll, I'll make these templates, I'll make these folders and start these little projects and just one or two sentences describe what I want it to be. And then whenever I don't have freelance work coming in, if I don't have a project I'm working on at that moment, I'll open this folder and look at what I've got. And you will be amazed if you leave something in here for a week, two weeks, a couple months, and you come back and open it, you'll get this spark whenever you see something you really want to make. You'll be like, oh, oh my God, I forgot about that. Okay. And you get kind of excited. That's what you need to write next. <laughs> That's the thing that you need to do for people. Even if you're not sure if it'll sell, the fact that it made you excited guarantees that it's going to be good for you long-term because it's, it's so hard to keep grinding out material. Like 
uh, an industrial machine just spitting out publications. But when you find something that interests you and really excites you, man, that'll that'll keep you going a lot longer than just looking at profits and line graphs going up. I, I'm really curious. How many do you have in that folder right now? Um, 31. Okay. <laughs> it looks like. Uh, you know, it can be it can be anything. I have four adventures. I have three like campaign ideas, two world book ideas. I even just have some pictures that are creatures. I'm like, yes, <laughs> put this in a book, and it'll just be something like I could make an entire book of monsters based around libraries. So there's this book golem picture sitting in this folder. I'm like, oh, that's so cool. <laughs> that that does sound fun. I recently played in a campaign where we did have a dungeon in a library and there were uh, origamon. So it was <laughs> paper gammon and it was amazing. <laughs> I even have one. I didn't remember this was in here. I have one called the Crypt of Cuddly Creatures. Okay. Oh my gosh, what? <laughs> I- I got to do that at one time. There's not even a sentence inside it. It's just a title. Yeah, I got to make that. I will 100% by that the day it comes out, whatever that winds up being, that sounds amazing. (laughs) Okay, so inspiration comes in whatever form it may, and you'll add it to this folder. And then when you do have the time to kind of work on something, you know, you can answer this about if it's going to be just a supplement or a side quest, but... You know, what are your next steps? Like, how much time do you like to devote to these different types of things? Well, that's that's kind of a kind of a rough one uh, because I feel like in our modern society, and a lot of people listening to this, and a lot of people in this sphere will kind of flirt with these ideas and realize that they're a little harmful. The idea of monetizing every single minute of your time. Like, we always want our side hustles to make money. We want our hobbies to make money. We want our day job to make money. Why would we spend an hour cooking this thing when we can do something in 10 minutes and then go make more money? You know, it can be it can be daunting to know how much time to invest in something you're not sure will pay you, right? I completely understand that. I am with you, dear listener. <laughs> I know the struggle. But... You really just have to feel it out and you really have to know where to invest what emotions and what thoughts and time you have right now. I'm currently in a freelance position. I have been contracted with three different companies at the moment, all NDA, so I can't get into too much, but I can tell you how many. And The thing is, I know that I have a timeline for each of those, and I know how to manage my time. And it's usually do everything at the last possible minute because I thrive off of knowing that the headsman's axe is coming down. But at the same time, I know that I can only do my best work when my mind is in the right spot for it. So right now I'm actually working on a side project Some people who know me from Twitter and know me in real life may know that since December, I've had quite a few health concerns crop up, and that's really put my mind in a weird spot, 
and it's hard to focus on editing and layout. It's hard to do the stuff that I've been freelanced to do. So instead, I'm putting my mind into a project that has inspired me and made me enthusiastic. And the fact that I have multiple things to put my time into, like my personal tabletop project right now, that I'm not really going to talk about because it's like barely even 70% done. I don't even know if I'm going to publish it yet. But the fact that I have multiple projects to do that with means that I don't feel like I'm wasting time. I don't feel like I'm hopelessly lost. I always have something to turn my attention to. And that's what my idea for the folder is. If I get to a point where I just can't think about one project anymore, I have others that I can turn to, other things that I can uh, put my time into. And it does take experience or long conversation with your peers or listening to stuff like this to realize when you've hit that point that something is going from a side project to an actual thing you need to invest your time in. And for me, when I realize that I've done more than 70% of the work already myself, that's when I want to bring people on. That's when I want to see it to its conclusion and I want to push it the rest of the way and get it out there for the world. I feel like so many times new creators, new writers, and new designers will put every waking moment of themselves into a project for two, three, five, eight months. And then when they're almost ready to hit the publish button, they just can't take it anymore. They just cannot stomach another second of thinking about that project. And it ends up going on a shelf. And that's, man, that's soul crushing when you put all that time and work into something and then you just can't push yourself over the edge to publish it. So for me, invest what time you can. As soon as you're sick of a project, stop working on it. Go work on something else. When you think that your work isn't up to par, when you don't think that you're putting in your best effort for a project, work on something else for a day, two days. Keep those conversations open with the people you're working with if it's not your project. Let them know how you're feeling. Let them know if they may need to bring on help. You always want to keep moving and keep working on something, but it should never feel like you're being crushed underneath it. You raise a really, really good and important point that I think our culture definitely hides. You know, it definitely like discourages it and that it is so important to have that balance, especially if you are in a creative industry that like, yeah, everybody wants their passion and their side hustle to become their full-time thing, but you don't want to lose yourself into like the, the neediness of not being able to enjoy what you're working on anymore. Exactly. It's, it's a hard line to walk, but it's one that you have to, you have to kind of gauge for yourself. Only, you know, when something is gotten to the point where you kind of hate it. <laughs> you don't want to ever admit it, but it's like, I am so sick of working on taverns, inns, and tap rooms, <laughs> which was one of my like best selling things, right? But at one point, I got so sick of it. <laughs> I'm like, if I write one more, 
one more recipe in this book, I'm going to lose my mind. So I stopped working on it for like four weeks and worked on something else and published it really quickly. Taking those breaks, it's it's really important. Yeah. So when you are wanting to take a break, are you playing games or are you doing other things? I usually turn my attention to video games, if I'm honest. Okay. Uh, I love tabletop and I love playing in tabletop games, stream games, podcasts, stuff like that. But, you know, scheduling can be hard. There can be a lot of emotional drama and emotional weight, especially for really heavy role play experiences. And you'll see that a lot with live plays and live play podcasts. People tend to not stick to really dour or heavy moments in tabletop just because it can be such a drain on everyone involved, including the listener. It's good in short bursts. Uh, We've all had those moments where we want to (laughs) cry, like listening to a game or playing in a game. I've even cried with uh, the Venture Maiden's Descent into Avernus. I think everyone cried in our last session. But sometimes that can be too much of a drain on your mental health, and it can be too much of a drain on your emotional well-being. So sometimes losing yourself in audiobooks or podcasts, like narrative fiction podcasts, what like playing video games, watching people make RPGs. Um, I used to all the time go to Matt Click on YouTube and watch him just doing layout for RPGs and see if I could pick up something. And hearing people talk about the stuff that they love and doing stuff that you love that's removed from the tabletop sphere can recharge your batteries pretty quickly. And I have borrowed and stolen a lot of material from video games because it's been one of my longest living loves in my entire life. What games are you playing right now? Uh, good, good question. I, I didn't just wake up. Uh, <laughs> I, I just recently finished Journey to the Savage Planet, which I have not heard many people talk about, but it's actually a fantastic game. Medieval Dynasty is great. It's in early release or early access right now. It's it's like Minecraft, but set in very poor rural Europe <laughs> in the medieval dynasty areas. And Valheim has been great. Really, really fun game. There's a lot, a lot of moving parts, I think, in video games that I like to look at and evaluate. Why do I like this so much? Can I recreate this in a tabletop? So getting getting your mind worked up in that way can be fantastic. So even when you're trying to take a break, you're still thinking about how you can use it. Well, that's kind of the sickness of it, right? When, when you get so involved in tabletop. I recently am watching Castlevania and The Witcher and other fantasy stuff that I just enjoy kind of losing myself in. And every time I see someone on screen, I'm like, oh, rolled a crit on that one. <laughs> oh, boy. Oh, I wonder how you could make that spell in 5e. <laughs> like, that's just kind of how it is. Is this your first time watching the Castlevania show? Oh, no, this will be my fifth time. <laughs> okay. okay. <laughs> really, really good. It's worth it. It's, it is good, really good. Okay. I do want to jump back over and uh, just kind of ask about a transition that has kind of come up. So you 
started publishing all of these items on DM Skilled, realized it was going really well, started publishing more things. At what point did you start to branch away from that? I know you've got your the freelance things that you're doing at this point. I know you also do some reviews on your blog. So I just love to hear a little bit about more of those. So the order of operations actually was way back when, when I first started DMing kind of full-time. I was still living in Mississippi. I had a full-time job as a store manager. And I was running a game every Tuesday, and I was playing or running a game every Sunday with a group of about 11 people. <laughs> so it was, a, it was a huge undertaking, but it was great. And they're all wonderful people. But I had a little bit of extra money for the first time, maybe ever, because at the game store we were working at, I could get $2 in credit per player that I had at my table. Uh, so I was making like $22 every Tuesday when I was running the game for those 11 people. And that would pay for my books and my dice and stuff. So the little bit of a budget that I had for, you know, tabletop game stuff, I didn't have to spend it suddenly. And I was like, well, cool. Well, can I buy some of these fancy dice? Are these good? And I started looking online and no one was reviewing them. I couldn't find a written review with good photographs anywhere. You could find some YouTube videos, uh, like uh, Nate at Natural Twenty, like he did, he did some, and there are just some other people here and there. But they were usually just like unboxing videos. They'd be like, "Oh, these look really cool. I really like the weight. Yeah, they're nice. So if you want to check these out, there's a link below." And I wanted a more detailed, like close, firsthand experience of what these things were. Because spending sixty dollars on a set of really nice dice. That is a huge gamble for someone who grew up pretty poor. You know, I was like, that's, that's one tenth of my rent. <laughs> I don't want to waste it. So I actually just decided to ask and see if I could do reviews for some of these companies. And the first two companies that I reached out to were life changing in that regard. And that was easy roller dice and Norse foundry. And when I reached out to the two of them and I said, hey, I've made a WordPress. It's free. <laughs> I made a WordPress. I have a website and I want to do reviews. And I reviewed one regular set of Chessex dice that I had. I'm like, but I would love to review your dice. Here's what I can do. And they were like, sure, we'll send you some stuff. And my entire mind exploded. <laughs> I had no idea that they would actually say yes. So the whole tabletop thing started from me wanting to know what dice were safe to buy, what dice trays were good, how these things worked. And word of mouth kind of spread on that, and my website got a little bit more popular. So I started reviewing more and more expensive stuff, $100 dice trays from Dogmite, entire dice systems from Wormwood, that kind of stuff. And that's where the initial following came from on Twitter and Facebook and places like that. People looking for my reviews. And I was doing giveaways when these companies would send me extra stuff to kind of give back and to pay it forward for them trusting me. I wanted the world to get their extra stuff. I wanted to give these dice away and give these mats to people and do all this stuff. And that's where people started coming from when they were asking about how I played my games and how I ran my games. And 
that snowballed into me releasing stuff on DMs Guild. And that snowballed into people realizing that I could do pretty good work. And when they could see like that, I spearheaded the entire project and did all the work, but the cover for something, they were like, Hey, do you want to edit this thing that I'm doing? Yours looks very clean. looks very well done. Well, uh, yes, sure. (laughs) Here are my rates. Please, please put me to work. I think I still have put me to work in my biography on Twitter because for all of 2020, I just said yes to everybody. Every project that came up, I just said yes. So when you look at my portfolio on DMs Guild and elsewhere, I think I released one product in all of 2020 just because I was saying yes to make other people's things come true. And it's such a sharp transition is what you called it. I think it works best. I went from reviewing stuff to releasing stuff to publishing my own stuff, to working with people. And working with people has made me such a better designer, writer, editor, and layout artist that my own products, when I start releasing them again, are going to be miles and miles better than the stuff that I used to release and be super proud of. I look back on my first releases and I'm a little cringed out. I'm like, oh God, people paid for that. But there's, they're perfectly happy and they still have good reviews. I'm like, oh, please trust that I've changed since then. I Honestly, I get that. We release, I say we, um, I help with the business side. Brenton does all of the actual creating parts of things. But yeah, we released a couple of map packs back at the end of 2019. And now we look at them and we're like, no, we have to update that. We cannot, we can't stand by that version. <laughs> I mean, I feel the same way. I did um, I did a couple of updates myself, and it can be pretty cathartic. A lot of people say not to do it, but going back, I released a Taroka crit hit deck 100,000 years ago, it feels. I was looking at that this morning. Yeah, I, I was actually running Curse of Strahd when I wrote that originally for my players. And out of 11 people, six of them really liked it. Three of them were indifferent and a couple of them hated it. So I thought, hey, this is great to release on DMs Guild. But when I went back and looked, oh, it was embarrassingly bad. It was just the home brewery. I didn't know how to do layout myself. And it was super unbalanced. It had typos. There was no art. <laughs> it just looked so terrible. So one day I just went back and I was like, I'm going to put one day one single eight-hour personal shift of my life into seeing if I can make this look better. And the version two re-release is 100 billion times better than the original. And it only took me eight hours, and I got over 150 sales for it. When I re-released the version two and showed people on Twitter, they ate it up. They were like, I was on the fence because it didn't look great. But now that it looks great, I'll buy it. Like, okay, cool. Thank you. That's awesome. So going back a little bit to just follow up on something that you said, when you first sent those requests to review to those first two companies, were you just asking for product in return? Did you have a rate that you wanted to charge or did you kind of wait a little bit before you started charging for those? So truth is, I actually do not do physical paid product reviews. Okay. If I get 
a product, like a physical thing I can put in front of my face, not a PDF or anything. I don't charge for that. I want the physical product and it's mine to keep, right? Because I feel like if I don't have it to look back on, all of the things I've ever done review, if I haven't given them away, I've kept them. Because what I want to do is moving forward with reviews forever. I want to be able to look back on this thing and reevaluate my opinion on it if I ever need to. So for books and PDFs of things, I'll do paid reviews. But physical things, I want it to keep on my shelf for reflection purposes, basically. And that's a huge ask for some companies. I don't think a lot of people realize that when YouTubers and things like that do big reviews for uh, graphics cards and other high price items, usually the company will send it with return packaging, let you do the review early, and then you package it up and you send it back to them. And for me, whenever they ask for rates, I just tell them ownership of this product falls to me so that I can keep it. I can use it in previous reviews. I can use it in photo shoots for future reviews, and I can do comparisons for it. And nine times out of 10, the company will be okay with that. One time I had a company reach out and they were like, we want you to review our $2,500 gaming table. It was not Wormwood. (laughs) (laughs) I'll just say that. Don't put words in my mouth. It was not Wormwood. I had never heard of the company before. I'm like, absolutely, but you have to give me the table. And they're like, oh, we don't think so. I'm like, I am not accepting a $3,000 thing that I could mess up. (laughs) No, thank you. (laughs) Tip the camera over accidentally and scratch it, and then I have to pay for a $3,000. No, no way. Yeah, that would be terrifying. The stress. I would review it negatively just because I'd be too afraid to mess with it. (laughs) That is a really cool distinction, though. I like that. I appreciate it. And I feel like the majority of companies probably appreciate that, too. That you would kind of take the time to not just do a rushed, okay, I've had it for three days and I'm sending it back, but really analyzing it. It's, It's difficult because, you know, you want to... If you want people to trust in your opinion when you're doing a review for an item, but they don't have any reason to, if they don't know you personally, they don't know if you're being trustworthy. They don't know if you're getting paid $1,000 to say that something's great. So I hope by not accepting payment for physical objects that people understand I'm not being paid to speak it up. (laughs) I'm not being told, you know, that it's better than it is and being told to do that. But people will still be upset and they'll say, but you got to keep it. I'm like, well, yeah, you know, I made a dollar thirty-eight from advertisement on my website last year. <laughs> you know, I, I need something for the 40 hours it takes me to review this thing and do the photos and upload them and write the review and host it and advertise it. So usually I think that the exchange there is all right. If someone wants me to review you know, a a three or $4 product, something that I couldn't possibly write a review for. I'm still happy to do it and happy to show people. But usually that kind of thing will just be social media like Twitter or Facebook. And I'll do a short, you know, thread review of it. Be like, I really like this thing. It's pretty interesting. They send it to me to check out. You should check it out too if this kind of thing is what you want. 
But for bigger products, I don't know, keeping impartiality is very difficult when so many people have learned on the internet to not trust reviewers. Once that trust is broken, it's really hard to get it back. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And it, it is always that question uh, as a reader of just like, okay, well, we're, if they're getting paid for this, then why would they talk bad about it? Mm-hmm. Anytime I see someone do a promotion for Norton antivirus, I'm usually like, mm, I hope that they paid you really well. <laughs> <laughs> Looking back at just the journey that you have taken up until this point, if you were to just start all over, is there anything that you would do differently? I think the only advice that I would have is, and it's just kind of a reality sort of thing. It's not good. It's not bad. It's just part of it. Knowing people is like nine tenths of everything. It, it's so hard to just do it alone and grind it out, as people like to say. You know, just keep making thing after thing and releasing it and talking and trying to build everything from scratch. Having people that you appreciate and that you enjoy, people that you're friendly with, even if you're not friends, that are peers, people are doing the same thing that you, uh, the same thing that you are. Elevating them and talking with them and learning from them is more important than anything that you'll do on your own. And that is so, so difficult. Uh, The very first time that I went to a convention ever was in 2019, (laughs) right before the pandemic, obviously. And 2019, I met maybe 50 people at D&D Live, the Descent into Avernus release. And then at PAX Unplugged, I met maybe 100, 150 people later that year. I got more work from those two conventions that cost me maybe $500 total to go to both. I got more work from those two conventions than the previous four years of doing stuff on my own. That is just, you've got to find people that you want to work with, people that you want to invest in, be friends with, peers in your community that you can talk to and exchange information with. It matters so much more than I ever thought it would. That's wild. Like, how did all that business come about? Did you have a booth? Were you just introducing yourself to people? I can't even imagine having a booth. My anxiety <laughs> would murder me. Uh, at D&D Live, it was basically me shriveling in a corner and hoping not to be noticed and people checking on me <laughs> and me being very open and honest. I think once people meet you in person, they can kind of gauge whether you're whether your personality online is really you or not. We all put on a face when we're online. We all we all select and choose what the world gets to see of us. But when people meet you in person and when people sit down with you at dinner or they share some fries from a food truck or they're standing around waiting on an event to start and strike up a conversation with you, it's so much more raw and more emotional and easier to understand someone. And I think that going to those conventions and meeting people and saying, hey, I sincerely love your work. (laughs) And they're like, 
taken aback and completely floored by it. Oh, well, thank you. Like uh, this book and this book were fantastic. This was great. I would love to get you on this project that I had in mind. It's in my folder on my computer and it says Cavern of Cuddly Creature. <laughs> you know, <laughs> just little things like that, sharing those emotional moments and ideas. It brings the humanity back into the conversation. So afterwards, when they were like, I need an editor for this. And they remembered me at that convention saying that I had done a bunch of editing and that I have a a bachelor's degree in English with an emphasis on writing and literature. They're like, maybe I'll reach out to him. Hey, JB, what are what are your rates? Oh, oh, oh my God, you reached out to me. Hello. Yes, I would <laughs> love to do this. What can you afford? I'll give you whatever you can afford. And it just it it just snowballs from there. Once you work with one or two people and they enjoy your work and they feel like they got their money's worth, they'll tell people about it. And that's part of the whole thing that I was saying. You have to find peers that you want to elevate. People elevated me because I did good work. And in turn, I help elevate them because their work is better. And it's this give and take and give and take. And the whole time, it's like climbing the rungs of a ladder together. That's just how it has to work. Doing it alone, you've got to put in the work of five or 10 people when just having one other person on your side telling people you do good work, does that work for you? Yeah, I really love how much this community, as you start to get to know people and like it just grows and builds on each other and there's just the support system is so amazing. It can be intimidating sometimes. Like any group, there are cliques. A community is a big group of people that you treat fairly equally and you try to reach out to individually when you can. But a clique are the people that they go to each other's houses. You know, they know the names of one another's cats. They FaceTime for no reason and just hang out on the weekends, that kind of thing. And, you know, you'll see a project that has the same five or six people over and over and over and over and over. It can be discouraging when you want to work with those people and you know there's no spot for you in their life. But the community is so big. You do not have to put all your eggs in that one basket. And eventually they're going to have overlaps where they can't work together when you can ask them onto a project and have that experience you've been waiting for. You just have to realize that it's like it's like asking people to not go to dinner with their friends and come to dinner with you. They're not sure how it's going to go. They don't know what the experience is going to be like. They want the sure thing that's worked and it's been tested. And that can be so disheartening for brand new people in the community. But just keep at it. Just keep at it and keep making friends and keep spying in on people's uh, Twitch streams and saying supportive things. Retweet their selfies. Show them that you're not here just to make money off of their effort. You're here to actually support them and it'll change your entire life for this industry. Jump on their tweets saying like, hey, I'm open for podcasts and say hello. <laughs> yes, when when they, me, when they are like, please bring me on your podcast and you say, I have a podcast. Ta-da! <laughs> <laughs> yes, that's how this happened in case you're wondering, dear listeners. <laughs> I mean, that's, that's part of it. If you, if you take a thousand, a thousand foot view of it, right? I put myself out there 
in a very exposed position on the end of a branch and said, I really want to be on more podcasts. I haven't been on many in 2021. I really want to be on more podcasts. And then you went out on a branch and said, I have a podcast. Like both of those exchanges <laughs> leave you a little open and a little raw. Cause if no one replied to my tweet, I'd have been wounded. <laughs> And if you were like, you want to come on my podcast? I was like, no, you would have been wounded. So you got to take those leaps of faith and just just hope that people are going to be receptive to you. It's, just, it's part of it and it sucks, but eventually you're going to meet people that really do want to elevate you and want to work with you and have you on and stuff like that. And that feeling's great. Yeah, absolutely. One question that I really like to ask on all of these episodes is what would you say has been the most challenging part of all of this? The most challenging part. Our industry is full of gatekeepers and people use that term very loosely. They use it a lot about a lot of things, but when I was starting out, I had a lot of people come onto my product releases, onto my YouTube videos, onto my Twitter, and basically say, you know, why do I care what you do? Why would I buy this when I can make my own? Why do I care about your reviews? Stuff like that. Why would I buy a $50 uh, dice tray when I could just use the lid of a shoebox? Those people, ignoring them has been the most arduous part of everything for me because one bad comment can haunt you for a long time. Letting that go, realizing that those people do not matter and focusing on the positive voices, the voices that matter and uplift you and teach you, that's probably the hardest part. And that's true of literally any business you're in. But I think it's especially true for tabletop because so much of it comes from personality. Role play, design, implementation, advertising, all of it takes you to create that thing. When you're on a podcast and you're playing a character, what that character does is you. And it's very exposing sometimes, and it feels like you're very vulnerable so when those negative comments and those negative people come in, it hurts a lot more than if you're, you know, making pizza or you're selling shoes and someone's rude to you. You just, asshole, and you go about your day. But when you put so much of your own effort and your own personality into something and it gets thrown in your face, it hurts. So learning to ignore those voices and keep making stuff and keep making connections with people that is the most difficult thing. And had I known that when I started out, I think I would have been in a better place. Because every time I got a negative, why would I buy this bag of holding sheet? I can use a piece of notebook paper. I was like, oh my God, he can. Oh, the fraud. <laughs> it just makes the imposter syndrome so bad. And every single person I've talked to in the industry has it. So I know that it's, it's a commonality between all of us. It's true. It's true. <laughs> okay, let's flip it around. What has been the most rewarding part? Meeting new people. 
whenever I meet someone that likes what I do and they like how I do it, it kind of sticks with me, you know? And when I went to D&D Live and I was standing in line to go into the venue on that first day and the sun was beating down, I was already California sunburnt from the day before. So I had an umbrella (laughs) and I was like greasy with sunscreen and I felt so terrible and I wanted to just shrink into a shadow and evaporate. But people in line outside of the venue knew who I was and said hello and that they loved something I did. And that got me through the entire weekend. And the same thing happened at uh, PAX Unplugged. The very first day, I had someone uh, come up to me and say, you know, I love that book that you did. And, you know, I love Tavern's Inns and Tap Rooms is what they said, actually. And the fact that they were someone in the industry and they knew my work and they liked my work. Oh, that's so rewarding. It's so, so rewarding. And like I was saying a minute ago, that that kind of gives you that connection that extends that olive branch between the two people. Because if someone made you feel that way, when you do it to someone else, you know how they're going to feel. So uplift people (laughs) as much as you can. Uplift them. It feels so great. It feels so unlimited power. It feels so good. (laughs) That's now my favorite moment of this. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, it's true, though. Like, even as the person giving a compliment, when you you just see how happy it makes them feel, like, I know. I I just want everyone to support each other. Is that so much to ask for? (laughs) It's, you know, it's a a big ask. Uh, And so many people try to compare you to other successful individuals in the industry. Like, you know, if if I released Taverns Ends and Tap Rooms today, people would be like, have you seen Strongholds and followers from Matt Coville? I'd be like, Yes, it sold a hundred billion copies. <laughs> I can't I can't make something better than him in your eyes. I understand. But, you know, getting past that and just finding the people that'll work with you and uplift you and support you, that's just so good. It's so good. And I don't know that. I don't know that there are any other industries that have such a personal connection to the product that they manufacture and the people that, you know, hold it in high regard, their peers. Tabletop is just so exposing in that way. And it's it's scary, but also very rewarding. Absolutely. Well, as we start to kind of wind down, I know that you're under some NDAs and not necessarily wanting to talk about your kind of current side project, but are there any upcoming projects you are working on that you're excited about that you're able to talk about? I mean, I think that I can announce I'm going to be part of the Venture Maidens podcast world book that they're going to be putting on Kickstarter. We've officially announced that's coming and that's fantastic. I've also been making magic items for them every other week as a Patreon reward, and that's been very good. And I feel bad that I brought it up at all and refused to talk about it. So the tabletop RPG side project, the personal project I'm working on, is a D20 system based off of the Black Hack, which is a D20 roll under system. And it's very rules light. 
<laughs> right now, I'm about 70% of the way through the first draft of this tabletop game, and I'm at 3,100 words. So <laughs> it's it's going to be a very rules-light uh, tabletop, and it's based around Castlevania, Darkest Dungeons, Blasphemy, and other grim dark stuff like uh, Demon Souls and Bloodborne. But it's very cinematic and very quick. So that's kind of what I'm working on right now between freelance projects. And I'm super excited to get people to actually play test it, but don't expect anything from it until like May. <laughs> it's March right now. So don't expect anything for at least a couple months. And then I'll probably try to put together a Kickstarter or something if I think it really has legs and can be something worth making. Well, when that happens, I am so there. I am all about every game that you just mentioned. <laughs> Only a few people I've talked to aren't fans of at least one of them. So <laughs> That helps. That definitely helps. It does. It really, really does. <laughs> well, JV, thank you so much for your time today. Where can people find you? Again, I'm JB Little, better known as Drop the Die. And you can find me practically everywhere at Drop the Die on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, uh, OnlyFans, Vampire Freaks, LinkedIn, <laughs> like everywhere that I could get Drop the Die, it's probably there. And if you're buying stuff in the tabletop space, I do advise you just type in Drop the Die at checkout and see if I have a coupon because <laughs> I, I collect coupons like Ravens collect shiny <laughs> things. So you may be able to save a little bit of money. That's a good trick. <laughs> just a little something. I like saving people money. That's why I did the reviews in the first place. Fair enough. Well, again, thank you so much for coming on. I'll make sure that I've got as many of those links as I'm able to grab uh, in the show notes. Thank you for having me. It was fun. Yeah. I know I got a little long-winded, but it's early and I have a little filter. <laughs> uh, trust me, I want people to be long-winded on this because otherwise it's a 10-minute episode and I'm like, so um, what's your favorite color? Can you imagine dragging answers out of people? That'd be miserable. <laughs> <laughs> Can you expound on that? Uh, no. When did you start gaming? I was seven. Uh-huh. 16. And? <laughs> oh, my dad did it. Oh, uh, I'm getting secondhand embarrassment already and it doesn't exist. So, yes, thank you for not being like that and giving me lots of things and answers to my questions. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a blast. That's it for today's episode of Role Play Ground. To check out the show notes, you can go to lightheartadventures.com slash RPG. To keep up with every episode, please subscribe on your podcast player of choice. And if you're enjoying the show, please leave me a review. Reviews are one of the best ways to help a newer podcast get up off the ground. To follow me on Twitter, you can either find me at lightheartadv for our business account or at Ketra WCR to see me tweet about other things like my dog and World of Warfare. You can also find us as Lightheart Adventures on both Instagram and Patreon. Thank you so much for listening, and I'll see you next week on Role Play Grow.